This episode is brought to you by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Learn more at bluehost.com slash wondersuite. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world, to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, we launch Series 7 with a wine legend, Hugh Johnson, OBE, one of the world's best-selling authors on the subject of wine, from the world atlas of wine that graces the best coffee tables to the pocket book that sits in the finest pockets. We have an exclusive interview to reflect on his newly released, rewritten autobiography, The Life and Wines of Hugh Johnson. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Hugh Johnson, OBE, scarcely needs an introduction. One of the greatest names in wine writing, one of the world's best selling authors on the subject of wine. He's come a long way from Cambridge University's Wine Club, editing some of the glossiest magazines along the way and selling many millions of books, working closely with Jancis Robinson, OBE, MW, and also Margaret Rand. He is arguably one of the first influencers. Honoured for his contribution to the wine world and horticulture, as he's also a very successful writer on that subject, sharing his gardening reflections every month for the RHS in Trad's diary. He's now released a new updated version of his autobiography, The Life and Wines of Hugh Johnson. Uh, keep listening at the end, by the way, uh, because we have a special discount on that if you're inspired uh, to go and uh, invest in it uh, for listeners of The Drinking Hour. It was an honour to meet him at his home in Kensington and to welcome him to The Drinking Hour. Thank you, David. I'm going to start with uh, what uh, Trad would call a, a hardy annual. How did you get into wine? I was looking for some, somewhere to write because I, I came down from Cambridge University and, and uh, I just wanted to write. I had no qualifications for anything else, really. I did interview for a job with some big um, manufacturing company and realised that 
I, I couldn't speak their language at all. So um, just writing my own thoughts was the only thing I could do. Where would I do it? Well, um, a friend of mine heard that Vogue, Condé Nast, Vogue magazine, was looking for somebody for the features department, which is surprising, considering that it was filled with beautiful, intelligent, educated, well-dressed young ladies who'd won the Vogue talent contest. And uh, I think some the editor must have thought, perhaps we need a bloke here. Uh, so they got a 21-year-old bloke, uh, and I found myself in the office with all these gorgeous creatures. I enjoyed it. So after that, for a long time, my, my life was largely magazines. First Vogue, and then later on, I inherited, as it were, Queen magazine, which no longer exists, which merged eventually with Harper's Bazaar. So I became editor of Queen, which was a very different experience. And uh, I learned a huge amount doing that. And your enthusiasm for wine, uh, that began at university, didn't it? Yes, it did. I mean, you know, who isn't, as an undergraduate, who isn't enthusiastic for a glass of good wine? But it's quite true. And... uh, my college, which was King's College, Cellars, uh, was very well known. And uh, we drank an ungodly amount of champagne. My father thought I was mad. Uh, he particularly thought I was mad when I came down and left Cambridge in 1960 uh, with a dozen bottles of Paul Roger and I, from the buttery. He said, what are you doing? Well, that was... Actually, this is a little story I only really learnt the other day. That was in 1959, Paul Roger coined, as it were, their brute reserve and called it White Label. And that was our standard drinking at King's. It's hard to believe now, and it makes people quite cross, I think. Uh, But anyway, so I learnt that I was in Epernay the other day, and they said, well, 1959 was the... Yeah, we launched Pro Whitefold. I said, well, in that case, I'm your eldest customer. <laughs> you have a, a sort of Churchillian enthusiasm for Paul Roger, actually, don't you? Well, yes, to me, it's just an ideal drink. I mean, it's not that I don't love lots of other champagnes. And actually, now I'm drinking, well, I think I'm buying more English bubbly than, than champagne because I, it's so exciting to see what's happening in this country. When I first met it with... Um, one of the first vintages of Ridgeview in about 1993 or 4. And uh, Tony Lathwaite, he and I, well, he founded the Sunday Times Wine Club and I was brought along as president, in inverted commas. Um, we ordered, I think it was 500 bottles of one of the first cuvées made by Ridgeview in Sussex, um, which we sold at South Ridge. And we suddenly realised that this was, we've got to take this seriously. It wasn't just a stunt. It was actually a new and brilliant thing. Uh, so, yes, I've been with it for a long time. And uh, I, I recently uh, interviewed Dermot Sugru, hmm. uh, who you've described as I think, the finest winemaker in England. And uh, he, he recalled um, uh, an event uh, he was uh, attending. It was... Um, uh, Lathwaite's um, own cuvee of uh, English sparkling and you were uh, chatting uh, with uh, Dermot and also Tony Lathwaite and he recalled you both saying, you and Tony both saying that you never 
necessarily in your lifetime expected English sparkling wine to achieve what it has achieved. No, we didn't then. Although we were very enthusiastic first for the idea, wouldn't it be lovely if... <laughs> and um, and then when we started to taste it and, and started to... to to age it a bit. It was raw to start with. And I, because the acidity is notably high in the good ones, well, it dawned on me, you know, wines with high acid are the ones that mature best in bottle. And uh, and bingo, it, it really worked. I mean, we were, I think Tony and I drank our last bottle of the original South Ridge about 10 years later, and we were blown away. And... Where do you think it's going in terms of English uh, wine? Because uh, it is uh, at uh, its growth has been extraordinary, but it's uh, at a, an interesting point now, isn't it? Well, it is. It's in a highly encouraging and exciting point. I mean, the point is, it's certainly being helped by what you either call climate change or global warming to taste. Uh, the average temperature has gone up. The summer's got warmer. The crucial thing is the interval of time between the flowering and the ripening of the grapes, which the standard you know, people have said it takes 100 days to ripen grapes from flowering time. Well, that depends on good weather for the flowering and essentially also good weather 100 days later. Now, that is a dodgy prospect in this country. It used to be much dodgier than it is now. But, uh, you know, year after year now, you're just getting that necessary um, progression and we are getting grapes so ripe now that um, we're going to have to add add acidity one of these days as they do in champagne I mean champagne is being embarrassed by the fact that uh, the seasons are warmer and longer uh, and they're struggling a bit in some cases uh, English sparkling wine is endlessly compared with Champagne, and it is understandable as a benchmark. Mm. Uh, do you think it's uh, time to stop doing that and to talk about English sparkling wine in its own right rather than forever comparing it against champagne? Well, I, 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 I have done, I've done that for a very long time on the basis that it's not champagne and you don't want it to be champagne. You want it to be English. I always call it bubbly. I think it's a much nicer word than sparkling wine. And uh, it, it, it's got its own character, uh, based basically on the, the higher acidity, which comes from various, there are various reasons for it, uh, but it's a very, very valuable quality and it gives it this marvellous briskness and sort of racy quality and it's really refreshing drink. Whereas the kind of champagne that um, uh, is considered the best is mature, it's, it's very winy uh, and it couldn't really be described as refreshing. What about English still wines? Where are you on... Uh, on the still wine industry in uh, England? Well, it hasn't had the same concentrated effort put into it yet, as far as I know, as the, as the bubbly has. But the, the signs are good and the grapes are getting riper. And uh, the Pinot Noir is where it's really uh, showing the best form, I think. But not many people are doing, putting their backs into making great Pinot Noir. I've had a few that uh, have been like, rather light, uh, but very, very good um, red burgundies. Your 
uh, tastes in wine, uh, reading the book, your knowledge of wine, you've tried um, virtually everything, I think, but um, your uh, preferences are, um, dare I say it, sort of quite traditional, aren't they? Oh, I'm as square as you can be. <laughs> um, I've always loved claret, uh, and I see no reason to change. And whether it's just a matter of habit, I suppose it is, but I, I, uh, we drink more claret than any other red wine in this house. And um, well, last night we had a very nice fifth growth, no, an unclassified wine from the Solvago area, uh, Chateau Coltemel, uh, which is utter joy to me. It's got no pretensions, it's not a big wine. Uh, Robert Parker wouldn't approve of it. He would call it a little sort of meagre thing. But that, that again, its acidity is at the heart of it. It's ref- bottled refreshment. As acid and tannin are very, very prominent in it. You know, there are there, there is character, along with the sort of fruit uh, of the Cabernet and the Merlot. But the structure of the wine is quite, you might say, severe. And I, I just love that. I don't like floppy wines. Who does? Uh, uh, how has um, Bordeaux then evolved in the time uh, that you've been writing about wine, which is, is well over 60 years? Hmm. I suppose it has evolved, but only in getting better, really. I mean, I don't, the style of the best Bordeaux today is not so very different, although there were temptations in the days, again, of Robert Parker and high scoring and that kind of thing to make it, to, to pick later, to emphasise the, 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 the fruit and, and so on. I don't think that the average maker of Red Bordeaux, and, and, and he has a cru bourgeois, say, a good cru bourgeois, I don't think he's aiming at anything very different except greater ripeness, and that's always desirable because then it gives the winemaker uh, more um, more opportunities. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's changed that much. I'd be rather upset if it did. Uh, talking of upset, uh, you don't actually see eye to eye with Robert Parker on much, do you? No, far from it. I first encountered Robert Parker in 1978 because we had the same editor in New York, Dan Green of Simon & Schuster. And um, I was doing the proofs of one book or another, 1978, I can't quite remember what. Uh, And in his office, and he passed me a manuscript, and he said, Hugh, what do you think of this? And I started to read it. I said, God, who wrote this? This is amazing. Some of the most sort of punchy tasting notes I've ever read in my life. Uh, so I looked at the margin, and there were there was a vintage, and then there was a number, eighty nine, ninety three, something like that. And I said, yeah, "That's good, terrific notes, but what are these numbers about?" He said, "They're the scores." And I said, "Scores? You can't score wine. Can you score music? You know how is? Um, I suppose the marriage of Figaro is a ninety nine or something, <laughs> but uh, you can't do it. Wine is not that kind of thing." It's um, there's, there's a lot of objectivity in judging it. There's also a lot of subjectivity in it. However, I lost that round, that round and all the other rounds since everybody now does it. And it's still the total rubbish that it was at the beginning. So Parker points, Parker not points. something you've ever been Absolutely. very keen on. I have never scored a wine 
That's not quite true because sometimes at a trade tasting, so you're trying to sort out basically it's your preferences. You know, you're supposed to give three marks for colour or something. Well, what's, what's absolute rubbish? I mean, what is a good colour? What is a bad colour? Is, is it for how dark it is, how bright it is? I mean, how typical it is? That kind of thing. If you start scoring, you run into all sorts of problems like that. In the end, you just quite subjectively say, I think this is 17 or something. And Jancis, indeed, gets stuck between 16 and 17 in almost everything she tastes. There are a lot of 16.5s, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, to play devil's advocate, Parker might say, uh, I've never met him, Jancis might say, um, that uh, this is a useful guide uh, to a consumer. Yes, uh, consumers, I mean, if they take it completely at face value, and that is how they they, uh, choose their wines, they are missing an awful lot. They're buying ready-made opinions that are subjective, that they're vague. That the other thing I think is so wrong is the uh, apparent precision of a score. You know, a 94 wine must be better than a 93. Well, what on earth does that mean? What is better? Do you like it more? I mean, it, it, there is no real logical, consistent grounding for that scoring system. And sure, it's a useful indication, and sure, it's quicker to read numbers than it is words, and I'm not surprised it's a success, but it has become universal. You know, you can hardly offer a wine without showing... I think in supermarkets they say this is a 96-point wine. Okay, you're rushed, you don't have time, you don't think, you don't have a sort of basis for judgment, you just say, right, that looks reasonable, you know, not a bad price for a 96er. So I'll, I'll try it. And of course, it leads to all sorts of wonderful jokes, like the guy in a New York bottle shop who comes back with a bottle that he bought the night before. And he said, um, he says to the storekeeper, he, he said, I, I tried to drink this wine last night. It is completely filthy. And the storekeeper says, Parker gave it, gave it 95. Oh, I'll take a case. I'm assuming, uh, given what you've written about the wines that you love, and given what you've written about what you're less keen on, the the way oak is used, for example, then you wouldn't see eye to eye with uh, Parker on very much in terms of uh, what he might rate in a wine. In in terms of personal taste, no. In terms of um, perceiving quality which is something else, you know, it's, it's impossible to define or explain, really. But sometimes, you know, class, quality, is something almost apart from the flavour. Uh, some wines have a sort of authority. They have a, the, the physical terms, they'll, we call them long. They, they last a long time in your mouth, which is a great gauge of quality. And they have balance, and the, the you know, the sum, it, it, it Sometimes one plant, two plus two, equals more than four in, in wine. It, it sort of speaks to more than simply your taste buds. It's very hard to explain, but I think that's where great wines rise to a level where you just think, well, how could that be improved on? You can't, and it's say, saying something unique. It's expressing the, 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 the grape, the place, the maker, 
the vintage, the maturity or the lack of maturity, all these things are in its own language. Um, and, uh, and that's what's so special about wine. You say in the book, uh, great wines don't make statements, they pose questions. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I did say that, and I'll st- <laughs> I'll stay I'll stay with that. It really it, a great wine doesn't sort of wrap itself up and say there right there you are. That's what I have. It says there's more to me than it meets the eye, uh, and you go on looking for it, which gives you more than satisfaction. It gives you curiosity. You think how did it get to that? Uh, in the introduction to the latest book, uh, Eric Kazinov says. Uh, uh, the Life and Wines of Hugh Johnson is about generosity of thought and feeling. Uh, you do quite a lot of um, sort of thinking aloud rather than telling, don't you? <laughs> yes, I suppose I do. Um, I think it's what writers do. I mean, it, it, it's easy to write. It's a lot of research, but it's re- relatively, relatively easy to write an encyclopedia. Uh, to write something which is going to interest people and encourage them and um, l- make them want to find out more, uh, in, in, engage their curiosity, I think that's a bit harder. And that's what I've always tried to do. And you do it uh, very successfully. Uh, I was talking to um, an esteemed editor uh, about uh, your writing um, some time ago now, and uh, we both concluded that you could probably write about anything and make it interesting it's an early critic actually after my first book which is just called wine the four, my favorite four-letter word uh, in 1966 uh, the reviewer said i would read every uh, word that hugh writes even if he were writing about coal mining <laughs> well i can kind of understand why that would be and uh, and of course um uh, you write um probably as much as you write about wine, about gardening, don't you? Yes, actually, uh, in recent times, more, really, because I'm not writing a wine book at the moment. Uh, I've done several sort of uh, anthologies of old writing, that kind of thing, um, and I sometimes think to myself, did I really write that? It's not bad. Uh, but then in... Um, Funny enough, in 1975, which was the year that Decanter magazine was launched, I was also launching a magazine, uh, and it was the it was called the Garden. It was made out of the old, very stodgy and technical Journal of the Royal Horticultural Society. I suggested to them that I'd become. It starts in 1971 when I wrote a book about trees. I had my editor, James Mitchell, who started Mitchell Beasley Books, who produced uh, The World Atlas of Wine. Uh, he, After The World Atlas of Wine had been a big hit, 71, he said, well, Hugh, what's next? Uh, that was great, what's next? And I said, trees. And he said, cheese, so oh good, cheese and wine. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, James, T-R. And he said, oh, no, no. He said, that's, that's not a consumer subject. <laughs> Uh, but uh, they published that, did they? Or did you have to oh, find no, someone else to publish it? No, no. I, we, what we did is we found a sponsor. We found uh, one of the really big international paper companies. In fact, it's called the International Paper Company. Uh, and we persuaded them to uh, subsidise the book, or rather to... to They were celebrating an anniversary of some kind. 
we suggested that they sent it out as a sort of goodwill gift to all their customers. And they, we said, if you take a thousand copies or maybe two thousand copies, um, and uh, you'll, we'll give you a two percent royalty. Now that's not the way that sponsorship usually works. And they were very pleased with it because they got their money back in short order. Well, that's uh, something I was going to come to because you have always uh, be, been, you know, highly respected for your sort of editorial integrity. But you've also got involved with commercial ventures. You haven't been afraid to uh, to, to kind of do what um, others might be nervous of doing in terms of commercial arrangements yeah, especially and especially in America. Mm. In, in America, this becomes a hot subject. And um, so many people have said to me, well, Hugh, you know, uh, aren't you, you're involved with um, Chateau Latour, where I was a director for some years, or the Royal Tokai Wine Company, which I founded. Uh, surely that sort of, um, you can't be impartial. And I said, well, just read what I write. You can tell if I'm being impartial or not. That's up to you. I mean, I'm not denying my involvement in these. In fact, I, I, I'm very glad because it gave me far more insight. You know, until you actually run a wine company, what do you know? So, um, no, no, I, I think it works. There's no... The basic rules of integrity, You, if you have a bias, you show about it. You, you, you know, say so. And then the reader knows where he stands. Another of your quotes, which I'm curious about, volume is constantly being mistaken for quality. Well, this is a sort of perhaps referring back to Robert Parker's taste and, mm-hmm. you know, volume, bigger is better, mm-hmm. uh, to which um, I always reply, less is more. <laughs> mm. And that, that comes through, in, again, in the way that you write about the, uh, um, the wines that you love. Um, you were actually born in... A, a pretty dodgy vintage, weren't you? Not as dodgy as the one I was born in 1972. And Margaret Rand looked at me when I told her that and said, uniformly terrible. Uh, but uh, but you weren't born in a great vintage either, were you? No, 39 was a stinker. Um, and I've spent my life looking for exceptions to this rule. And you could find a Madeira, if you were very, very lucky, uh, which is not nothing to be ashamed of. And I was once, I was in Bulgaria, when I told them my birth date, and uh, they rubbed their hands, and they went and produced a bottle of um, Mavrod or something, which actually had no label, but it had a wooden label around its neck, and I, sus- I very much suspect they'd just written 1939 on the label. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what am I going to do for 1972? I'm I'm, I'm stuffed basically, aren't I? Yeah. No. <laughs> Madeira, an aged Madeira, I, yes, I suspect. Yes, Madeira can, you can hardly go wrong. What, what, when it, what, what, a bad vintage Madeira just doesn't ever show up. I would, I'd go, go on tasting in hope, actually, if I were you. It yeah. might even be champagne. Yeah, well, I'd certainly, uh, I'm certainly happy to try tasting champagne <laughs> until, uh, until I hit the, uh, the golden spot. Um, your first um, vintage that you kind of um, got to... Uh, to taste and to buy wine uh, was one of the very best. It was 61, wasn't yeah, it? It was. Um, 61, I mean, everybody said from the very start, this is just one of the great glorious vintages. I had no money to speak of, really. Then I was working for Condé Nast, and Condé Nast pays peanuts. Uh, okay, sue me. And, <laughs> and um, 
However, Avery's of Bristol, where I bought a bit of wine, did an offer, three cases each, uh, three bottles each, I mean, of the four first growth of mid and Crave, um, for £25. So I thought, I'll raise £25. And I, uh, the, the, so that was, that gave me a great dinner party wine for about, oh, 40-something years. That was the end of that, but um, oh, they, they were they were absolutely astonishing. You could see them coming across the room. The colour was so distinctively deep and um, no, a glorious vintage. I mean, we've had great ones since, um, and '82 is the is the standout that made Robert Parker's name, and he made its name. What else uh, post '82 should we look out for? Well, let's see. I mean, of recent vintages, <laughs> they, they seem recent to me. To most people, they're probably already old. Uh, 2009 and 2010, just talking about Bordeaux, uh, have produced simply wonderful wines, to my mind. Uh, and which is the better vintage? I think only time will tell, really. The 2009s are more agreeable at the moment on the whole. The 2010s, are, some of them are still a little bit hard perhaps uh, but they're both top top quality vintages and then since then we haven't had a real stinker I mean some people say 14 was a stinker but I've drunk some very agreeable light weight but typical uh, 14s 16s very very good vintage and so on and so on I mean nowadays you just don't get total stinker vintages partly due to climate change no doubt uh, grape selection, better vineyard management, uh, better technology at all levels. It, I can't remember the last really bad sort of lousy vintage bottle I've, I've tasted. Well, that's good to know. Uh, you had to uh, move on an awful lot of your wine. Um, those who are familiar with your work will be very familiar with Sailing Hall, your uh, country pile that you uh, sold nine years ago yeah, uh, to move to London. Uh, you do have a cellar, but it's uh, it's like my own. It's a it's a converted coal hole these days. Yeah. So, um, how much wine did you have to uh, to to sell when you left uh, Sailing Hall, and how did you decide what you were going to keep? Well, to be honest, I'd rather botched that job. With some reluctance, we sold this rather beautiful 17th century house and garden, and. Um, I had a very big, a freakishly big cellar there. Why a Tudor house had a cellar of five rooms, I've never worked out. What did they do with it? Because they didn't even have uh, bottled wine in Tudor times. But there it was. And uh, it now belongs to, well, the, 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 the current owner is a wine merchant, a very lucky chap um, to have so much space. So at one time I had a great deal of wine in there. And I realised that I also had wine in storage at one or two wine merchants, uh, so I could leave that where it was. Um, and I had a, a, a bit of a crash sale. Somehow it wasn't terribly well run. The local auctioneer was not quite sort of into it. Uh, I thought of sending it to Christie's or Sotheby's, and I saw there... Uh, what they charge for selling your things, I thought, no, 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 that's done far too much. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't a huge success, and I regret some of the things in it. I've, I've got the catalogue here. How many dozens have went? I just 
I don't know, maybe a hundred dozen or something like that. Uh, of most of me, most of them, my favourite wines, worse luck. <laughs> well, was, it'd be very cool to own a wine that had been in Hugh Johnson's cellar, uh, t- to be honest. But uh, how did you decide what to keep then? Well, the ones in store were uh, at the Merchants. That was easy. I just kept them. The ones that I actually physically brought to London uh, were my favourites, quite honestly. Um, I've got room for 400 bottles. That sounds quite a lot, doesn't it? In the down under the front doorstep, yeah? Um, uh, and they're all in racks, and uh, I know what's where. Nobody else does. It was a muddle. It was a muddle. I was in a bit of a panic when we left the country, to be honest. There was too much to be done. And I was working on a book, which always seems to happen when... <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, I, they say I've finished the World Atlas of Wine in the uh, removal van on the way to Sailing Hall, which is pretty much true, actually. Um, you know, the deadlines creep up on you. <laughs> I bet they do. Uh, and you have been um, prolific as an author uh, on wine and uh, gardening, so therefore that you've had a lot of deadlines. Um, you are cited uh, in wine terms, certainly, and I'm sure in, in gardening terms too, but I, I, I don't know. Um, you're cited as someone who, one of the very few, who has actually been able to make a good living out of writing books about wine. Why is that, do you think? Uh, well, luck, I suppose. Um, then it, it was the World Atlas of Wine that did it. My first book, Wine, did sell remarkably well, and... Um, and it sold very well in the States. I was jolly lucky to get uh, an American editor, a publisher, straight away. My, one of my proud, proudest facts in my life is that I shared an editor with P.G. Woodhouse. Goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, a very, a very, very a top novelist, who possibly not so well known now, called Sybil Bedford who was a friend of Elizabeth David, who was a very great friend of Judy and, and my, mine and Judy's. Uh, she read my manuscript of wine and said, this is exceptional and I will sell it for you in, in the States. And she did. So that was a... I, I had a real breakthrough there. I mean, for your first book to sort of print and reprint like that. And so I then went off into the magazine business again until James Mitchell, my publisher, said, um, what about this um, idea of an atlas of wine? What do you think? And I said, what? An atlas? You mean proper maps? Uh, and he said, yes, we've got a backing from Philips, the map makers in Holland. Um, they want themed books, uh, not just atlases, which are maps, but maps with a reason. And he said, the first one we're doing is oh, an Atlas of the Universe, which I thought showed a bit of style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he got Patrick Moore to write that. Uh, it was a huge success. Um, and so I said, well, he gave me two minutes thought. And I said, if we could have really, really good maps, like sort of ordnance survey standard, it would be a game changer because vineyards would be visible. And the, the sort of rigmarole of the villages of the Cote d'Or, Burgundy, trying to remember, which is in what order, every Chambertin, Chambertini, blah, blah, blah. Uh, You'd see them, and you'd not only see them as a picture, 
you would see all the physical detail, the contour lines, where there's a wall, even in the case of, of those maps. Choose to have where you're, where you're going to have a picnic. I mean, it's in that much detail. Uh, it's bound to be convincing because you can't, um, you can't fool people with maps, you know. It, it's a picture of the land. And I thought, wow, if I can do that for all the world's vineyards, um, it's a winner. And, and that's what happened. It was an absolute winner. Time Life Books bought a large number of copies, copies to start with, and um, that gave it a huge sort of public to start with. And in the end, we now I do it with Jancis, or rather, it's more accurate to say she does it with me. Uh, and um, it's uh, we're near five million copies of a book of an. You know, a niche book, you might say, selling at a fairly high price. So, I mean, I think that breaks records. And it was because we treated the subject, I, I treated the subject to start with, start with in a sort of magazine spread way. When you edit a magazine, you do it spread by spread. Each opening has got to be interesting in, in its own way. In the old magazine days, I used to, at Queen, First come the pictures, people will look first at the pictures, then they'll look at the picture captions to see what is this picture of. And then if they become interested, they'll read the, the grey stuff, which is the text in between. So those were my priorities. And, and um, explaining the pictures and explaining the maps was absolutely key to it. Um, and uh, I remember writing... With the, <laughs> oh, yes... Uh, James Mitchell, my publisher, rented a room just near to his office in Covent Garden uh, for me to sit down and get the book together when I'd done the text. And uh, that was in 1971. Oh, I just remember the, 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 the thing that threatened the entire book was a 10-week postal strike mm. in that spring and summer. And most of the stuff I needed, the way of illustration and the little uh, and the, the labels that we used, you know, a dozen labels uh, on each spread, they were all stuck in the post, and we were desperate, absolutely desperate. I don't know how we got through it, really. But anyway, on the in this room there was a big mirror, and when I sat down to write the captions, I took a bar of soap and I wrote on the mirror three facts a line. And James came in and crossed it out and wrote six. So that was the standard of caption writing. There were no captions like, you know, I've seen a caption in a book that says, a church in France or something. <laughs> <laughs> These actually told you what the picture was, why it was there, added more and more details. And so people got hooked on the, oh, good Lord, I didn't know that. Yeah, but the picture is leading them into it as yeah, well, which exactly. is what's so very clever. Uh, yeah. And that's and it's a beautiful coffee table book as well, of course. Yeah, it looks good on your coffee table or your or your wine tasting table. Something else that uh, has come about um, very successfully for you um, is of an altogether different size, and that, of course, is is the pocket wine book. A huge success as well, uh, a Christmas present for many a wine lover, myself included. Um, tell us how that came about. Well, it came about when James Mitchell was staying with us at, uh, for a weekend at Sailing Hall, and we'd just had this huge success with the World Atlas of Wine. And 
breakfast one day, he took out his little pocket diary and he said, all that anyone really needs to know about wine could go into a book like this, couldn't it? And I sort of took a deep breath. You're right, you're absolutely right. Why don't we crunch it? And then he said, well, how about it? So I sat down. I, I use, I mean, it's easy to find a list of all the world's wines. You look at the index of a book or something like that. So I then said, well, OK, I'll, I'll have a go. And I started with Bordeaux or something. Wrote, and I went down a long, 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 long list. And I said, well, that one, that one, that one, that, that one are wines that people may have heard of, uh, available, they're important, whatever it was, I'll choose those. And then write what I know in one-liners about each one. It, it came surprisingly easily, really. I mean, there wasn't time for research. I mean, it was, I knew what I knew and I wrote it down. And and it predictably went very well. The only trouble was that a year later, uh, James came back to me and he said, now, um, what about the new, the, the new edition? And I said, the what? I don't have to do it again, do I? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did it 44 times in the end. <laughs> and it's been a huge hit, hasn't it? Oh, yes, it's sold a lot of copies. I mean, if I've... Uh, my publisher tells me that altogether in total I've sold about 20 million books of all sorts. And of those, more than half would be the pocket wine book because it comes around again and again. Mm, yeah, and it's a significant year uh, because you're handing that one over now, aren't you? Yes. Uh, I mean, I've been so lucky to have the absolutely ideal collaborator who's taken on the job from me and... and it, ready to expand. In the World Atlas of Wine, uh, Jancis Robinson uh, had been, we and I, he, she and I had been collaborating over various things for a very long time, and I sounded her out, or in fact, it started actually, I remember they were having supper here, I think, or there, and uh, I sort of wanted to quietly broach it with her, would she join me in this enterprise? And I remember that uh, Nick, her husband, was not too keen. He thought, don't want to get her involved in a job like that. <laughs> mm, I bet. And uh, the uh, pocket guide is, is going to Margaret Rand, who's worked with you Margaret, for many years, hasn't she? Yes, I neither of us can remember how many years, but at least 15, I think. Um, and she's got more and more important to the book altogether. Uh, and now really, it, it, it was high time for me to, to let that one go. Partly because my wife, Judy, had said, problem with that book is that you need to revise it at Christmas time, and you're always head down at your desk over Christmas and the New Year. Is this necessary? Why don't you do something different? <laughs> and tell us about um, uh, the, the, the current book. I mentioned um, Eric's uh, introduction to it and that uh, generosity that he, he referenced. But um, uh, what um, are, are you seeking to do um, with, uh, with, with the, 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 the new book? Because it's effectively a, an update, isn't it? Oh, it's a rewrite, really. In the end, I think anyone who's been writing for as long as I have about themselves and their taste is is going to be writing the same book again and again and um, with a lot more experience and knowledge and hopefully uh, knowing a, bit, a little bit more about writing. Yes, I mean, it, it, it does plod through uh, red wine, white wine, busy wine, all that kind of thing in a predictable way. 
but that's that's the structure of wine, isn't it? Um, it's it's got more stories in it. It's got more experience in it, uh, and uh, and it's more up to date. And there's more of me in it, actually. That's what I would say. Mm, there is a lot of you in it, which mm. is uh, really lovely. And you you weave in very effortlessly, seemingly effortlessly. I'm sure it requires a huge amount of effort, but. Uh, you weave in uh, these little personal anecdotes, these personal stories on virtually every page. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, well, that's right. That's how it comes out. Because if I start thinking about some wine area, you know, let's take something like um, I don't know uh, Rioja. What do I really know about Rioja? I know about my visits there. I have certain sort of embedded memories of things that really seem to matter. Times when it really clicked, and I thought. I'm beginning to understand this place, uh, and so those are the those are the essence of the book. I I, I sort of uh, set the book in my own cellar to show how how personal it was, and it it begins with this spacious cellar we had in the country, uh, and going down the steps and smelling that indefinable cellar smell and getting quite worked up, and um, that 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 led me into it. Mm, and it led, leads us all into it. Actually, it's a, it's a beautiful way uh, to begin, and I can I can kind of um, smell the cellar too as I'm reading it. So it's it's very effective. Um, but uh, you began uh, writing about wine uh, in the 1960s, as we mentioned. Um, back then, there there was no New Zealand wine. There was no Chilean wine, presumably. I doubt we had anything from Argentina. I, I'm, I'm not sure. No. Um, so it, a lot has changed, and there, I mean, it must have been uh, something to keep up with everything that has changed in your uh, long career. Oh, it, it hasn't been possible in the long run. I can't keep up. Uh, but and nowadays, of course, you know, with the internet, there's so much information available at one click that that kind of you don't need that much research uh, but it's not just that i mean in the, in the 60s i coincided with a lot of interest and activity in wine i mean 66 happened to be the year that uh, michael broadbent restarted christie's wine auctions after a very long gap uh, it was california was just coming alive i mean the napa valley was nothing then uh, there was one place you could eat in the whole valley where they burnt a hamburger for you on demand and um, Robert Mondavi had just uh, he was he, I think he launched his famous iconic uh, new winery in either 66 or 67 uh, others uh, were it was a moment of great excitement in the wine world and I just got lucky and, and brought out my book at that time. You keep mentioning luck but you make your own luck I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure about that. Um, I've tried to avoid the hardy annuals apart from at the beginning um, but and you must have been asked this question so many times it must be very boring for you but anyone listening will kind of expect me to ask it and that is of the, the desert island wine the favourite wine it's probably going to be probably going to be champagne, I think. You know, to me, that champagne and Bordeaux are the centres of my wine world. Really, much as I love Burgundy, and fascinating as Burgundy is, and sublime as the great bottles of Burgundy can turn out to be, the the, the other sort of big departments of wine are 
sort of uh, working departments which are necessary but not necessarily sublime. I mean, sherry, I love sherry. Mm. Drink more sherry than most people, I think. But one doesn't get super excited about some unique bottle of sherry. You rely on it to be excellent, and that's all you ask for. You referred, and it amused me enormously when I read it, to the international Freemasonry of Riesling. Uh, what do you mean? I suspect most people will know what you mean, but I think we should ask you to, 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 to explain. Well, yes, um, Riesling was uh, one of my first great loves. I love German wine. And uh, somehow, how did it get out of favour? I mean, it, it, almost terminally out of favour for a long time. People said, oh, no, I don't like it. It's sweet. It's not, it doesn't really taste of wine. It's something different. And people sort of shied away from it. And it's quite true that there was a time when it was debased. The the age of Liebfraumilch, which wasn't Riesling, but it was in the same shape bottle and it came from Germany. And so they got sort of got tarred with the same brush. Uh, and there was a sort of real downtime in the 70s, uh, which was also... It, it also coincided with the German government making completely screwing up the wine laws that, that regulate German wine. They made an absolute bulls up of it in 1971. So much so, it happened to be the, uh, that the clock striking. Um, it, it was the year that I was researching the World Atlas of Wine, so naturally I was in close touch with the people who were making the new German wine laws in the ministry in, in Mainz. And uh, they they were very happy to send me the um, copies of all the new laws as they came out. And I went back to them and said, I don't believe this. What are you doing? You have torn up a centuries-old system that people were just struggling to know because it's complicated and replaced it with something that makes no sense, either in terms of quality or in terms of geography or in terms of anything except maybe politics. I said, this is a complete screw-up, you'll regret it forever. And it sounds a bit sort of as though I'm blowing my trumpet, but that's what came true. They found they'd lost the market, and now they're sort of rewriting the laws. Not not much, much better, I don't think. They invented something called the Grosslager, which was a collection of individual vineyards, which would be inevitably given the name of the best of those vineyards. So, so in, in, in other words, degrading the most famous vineyards in Germany. Uh, and so that was their thinking through the whole thing. And uh, I battled against it, and I still do. And I was called an elitist, mm. which in Germany is not a, uh, not a compliment. <laughs> so I said, well, hang on. What is quality? Quality is elitist, isn't it? How could you describe it in any other way? Anyway, that... that conversation went on for years and years and years <laughs> and it's hurt Riesling in the process oh didn't it I mean um, Riesling came back improbably through countries other than Germany which invented it Australia Austria you know Riesling had to be anything except German which is crazy because all the greatest Rieslings are German but then Australia came up with a sort of warm climate Riesling, which has a, a less acidity, different flavours, and uh, actually 
always tastes old to me. It takes years for a German Riesling to develop that sort of petroly character that all Australian uh, Riesling does. So for the real thing, you've still got to go back to Germany. I'm curious about uh, what you don't like, because you're very clear about what you do like. Um, So I'm almost uh, tempted to ask you what the worst wine you've ever tasted is. Well, worst is one thing, and and most unlikable is another. I would say that some of the most putting-off wines have been really high-ticket wines from California or, or indeed Australia. The ones that, well, I go back to, you know, I, I won't say it's Robert Parker's fault, but he did boost them and, and uh, give them crazy scores and, as a result, crazy prices. And th- I really don't like them. I mean, these wines that are full of alcohol, full of oak and, and sweet. You know, the Americans have a sweet tooth. There's no getting away from it. You know, American food, basically, is sweet. They add sugar to a lot of things or choose sweet things. And the same goes with the wine. And uh, it's not that I don't like sweet things because Tokai is the greatest sweet sweet wine in the world, and that's mine. Uh, <laughs> it's sweetness in things where it doesn't belong. Mm, yeah, no, a lot of people would uh, agree with you. Um, just finally, what uh, would you um, want um, if you had that um, opportunity? What would you want your... Uh, legacy to be enthusiasm for wine that is natural honest and good uh, and has character that is not industrial that comes from a place and a person which you can more or less recognize i'm not saying you have to be an expert and recognize everything but the difference between industrial wine and what i would call on the other the other extreme handmade wine is a huge, huge difference. I mean, if you're happy, somebody who's happy with a broiler chicken, go right ahead and eat a broiler chicken. <laughs> I wouldn't, I would rather spend more. Uh, it is a matter of price, obviously, and if you're lucky if you've got the money. I mean, there's no denying that. But the, the distinctiveness of original and authentic things is terribly, terribly important in wine as much as in anything else. I'll drink to that. Um, it's a, an enormous uh, pleasure to uh, meet you here. Um, thank you very much for uh, your time and for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Well, thanks, David. I mean, you've had some of my confessions, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> we have. We've enjoyed them. Thank you. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Right, time to wrap up with some medal-winning wines from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And it's no secret that Hugh loves champagne, as we heard. Uh, so let's start off there. Piper Heidsec 2014 Brut in Magnum was a trophy winner, so representing the best in show, as well as a gold medal winner. Uh, the judging panels were overseen by Essie Avalon, MW, this year for the first time. Uh, She's uh, a former guest on The Drinking Hour in the first series, and she's uh, one of the world's most influential uh, champagne critics. Her scores can really shift prices. It's no exaggeration to say. Here's what the panel had to say about this Piper Heidsec 2014 Brut in Magnum. 
pale colour hints at maturity with a bouquet of flint smoke and jasmine confirming this. Complex toasted hazelnut notes throughout. Weight gives finesse and elegance to the attractive fruit layers. Complex finish of confected toasted biscuit and dryness to the lingering flavour sensation. I was fortunate to taste this uh, vintage cuvee at the trophy tasting uh, and it was indeed um, superb. If rosé champagne is more your thing, uh, then here's another gold medal winner. Jacquard Mosaic Rosé Brut Non-Vintage. This one majority Pinot Noir with Chardonnay and Meunier. Giving their gold medal, the panel said this. Charming, delicate aromas of raspberry, orange peel, strawberry, red currant and lifted violet with subtle autolytic notes of brioche. The elegant mineral structure is supported by fresh, zesty acidity and soft mousse and a long, lingering finish. Let's head to Hugh's beloved Bordeaux next for a sweet wine that achieved some sweet success with a gold medal, 95 points. Marks and Spencer, Loire du Siron, 2018. A Sauternes, 80% Semillon, 20% Sauvignon Blanc. The tasting note says this, an attractive and complex nose of dried pineapple, baked apple, golden sultanas, complemented by stone fruit, butterscotch and honeyed spices on the palate. A classic example of Sauterne with well-integrated oak. Well done to M&S for that one. Uh, here's one of the budget retailers also doing really well with a classic Bordeaux wine, a Pomerol, Aldi Chateau Moulinet, 2016. Awarding it 91 points, a silver medal. Here's what the judges had to say. A delicate wine with lively red cherries, brambles and violets, balanced by earthy graphite, truffle and leather aromas with a long, warm finish. And let's finish with another variety Hugh loves, uh, Riesling. All that talk of the uh, Freemasonry of Riesling lovers. Uh, Weingut Karl Schaefer Durkheimer Michelsberg Riesling Trocken 2015. Uh, quite a mouthful in more ways than one because this was a gold medal winner with 95 points. The judges praising a highly concentrated nose giving aromas of flint, kerosene and tangy grapefruit. On the palate, this wine boasts more tropical notes of peaches and honeysuckle plus a distinct creamy malic undertone. Offers a long, persistent finish. Well, it's time for my own not-so-long, not-so-persistent finish. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. I am Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my sincere thanks to uh, Hugh Johnson, OBE, for allowing me into his beautiful home and uh, agreeing to uh, be interviewed at length. And thank you. Hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.